You know what that sound means? It's another episode of the Game for a Movie podcast where we ask, are you game for a movie? My name is Mike. I will be your host this evening, and I have one hell of a film to talk to you about. And I say one hell of a film because honestly, it's not even about the film. It's about the director. But of course, we start this podcast the same way we always start the podcast with what we are drinking. I have Mountain Candy from Sycamore Brewing right here in Charlotte. Sycamore is probably one of my most visited breweries since moving down here to Charlotte. Uh, Especially, I've met friends there, including Matt from the Hop Geek News podcast when he was in town for Packers Panthers. It was very good to actually put a face to a name finally. Obviously, we've talked a lot behind the scenes and stuff like that. We're in a fantasy league together. He's a guy that I claim, out of all the podcasters that I've met via Twitter or X or whatever, um, he's somebody that I actually would have considered a friend even before meeting him. And truthfully, it was very nice to actually get to meet him and his wife uh, at Sycamore Brewing. Sycamore's flagship is this Mountain Candy, which is a delicious IPA. Very juicy, very delicious. Obviously, candy giving that uh, juicy taste and everything. Before we talk about today's movie of the day, we are going to talk about some of the things we've been doing behind the scenes. We had an Emmys pool that was won by friend of the podcast, Mark, as well as we have a Razzie's pool and an Oscars pool coming up. If you would like to join, please send us a direct message on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And I will hook you up with a link so you can jump in, especially those Razzie Awards, because I have a special episode coming up with some of the Razzie movies that I've seen for the year. Talking about all of those, as well as my picks for who I think is going to win the Golden Raspberries, including a new movie that I now own because on Redbox it was $5 to rent and $3 to own. So I now own Johnny and Clyde, a film starring Megan Fox that... uh doesn't look amazing which she's nominated for worst actress for so yeah i've got some razzy information coming you may have seen that already if you get our newsletter i would also be happy to sign you up for that if you would like to have a i call it monthly newsletter but really it's just whenever i feel like it newsletter talking about movie news everything like that as well as giving you one spot to be able to click and find our show uh thank you guys for listening very much by the way if you are listening for the first time for the 700th time we really appreciate everyone that listens to the show especially me who's trying to do more and more episodes alone and is getting more comfortable with it unfortunately uh we will hope to have everybody back for another couple episodes in the next couple of weeks uh mitchell's bachelor party if you have been listening to the show a long time mitchell is getting married so his bachelor party is next month as well as his wedding the month after so it may be a little hard to get us all together with all of that going on and everything like that. But we still are going to try to get everybody together and talk about all of these movies, good, bad, whatever. Speaking of bad movies, I've got one for you today. It is one of the worst movies ever released in January. It is still January as of the time of this recording. It is Alone in the Dark. Alone in the Dark is from 2005. It is a video game adaptation from director Yuva Bull. And truthfully, it is a boring movie. Um, It's featured on the IMDb's bottom 100 film list of all time. It is a 1% critic score and 11% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and fully deserves every last bit of it, if you want to know the truth. I could talk about the movie, and I am going to talk about the movie in some detail as we get to it, but really what I've got to talk first is I have to talk about Yuva Bull. 
Yuva Boll, as I said, is the director of Alone in the Dark. He is a German filmmaker. He has a reputation. He has been known to get his hands on video game adaptations. He's done such movies as House of the Dead, uh, Alone in the Dark, Far Cry, Blood Rain, as well as Postal, one of his favorite movies that he's ever done. Almost none of his movies make money at the actual box office, though he does have a pretty sizable return for home video releases or people buying DVD copies of it. And I say sizable, not exactly amazing, uh, but at the same time, he is well known, and I will give them credit for this. I'm going to shit on this guy a lot, probably, but truth is, I am fascinated by Yuva Bull. Uh, he is just this chaotic man in the best of ways. Obviously, on the podcast, we talk a lot of bad movies and everything like that. And truthfully, it's because a lot of these have a little bit of heart and a little bit of feeling. And even if they're awful, sometimes it's just fun to watch. I will say Alone in the Dark wasn't one of those, but the career of Uva Bull is one of those. Like I said, he is just a very fascinating guy because he found a loophole in German tax law that keeps getting him money so that he can make these films. So one of the things I do want to give credit to for Uwe Boll is he works with incredibly low budgets, especially nowadays where every movie has inflating, ballooning production budgets. I don't have the exact numbers for Alone in the, uh, Alone in the Dark, but I do for House of the Dead. It had a production budget of around $7 million. It garnered $11 million at the box office and then an additional $28 million from home video. And that's a lot of what you can say because Alone in the Dark had a $20 million budget. It only made 5.1 at the box office. But I happen to know a lot of people that have rented it, bought it, seen it, that kind of stuff. Because they just want to see the train wreck that is Alone in the Dark. So I'll give him credit there. Where he works with these incredibly tight budgets, makes these movies, and they're not great. uh, But they do make their money back and then some. They do usually recoup their money. A lot of people like to look at just box office and especially certain worlds now that we live in where there's not a lot of post-market after theaters. And they just look at the box office and go, wow, this movie really didn't do well. Even if it did well worldwide or if it did well in post-sales for DVDs and stuff like that. So everybody sees his movies and goes, wow, that was a total flop because it only made $5.1 million on a $20 million budget. But it does usually make its money back in these post sales. So there, I've got, I've given him something nice. And as told, the compliment sandwich is always nice. Criticism, nice. Let's get to the criticism, shall we? So a lot of people, rightly so, because of his movies, have called him out and done negative reviews about Uvable. Some of these people have received the ultimate honor, is what I will say. So Bull reached out to his five harshest critics and basically challenged each of them to a 10-round boxing match. And I'm not joking. This is not something that he was just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to challenge them to a boxing match, put them in their place. He actually did them and was victorious in all five. Even if you didn't like the guy, I don't know that I would ever go in a boxing match against Yuva Bull, uh, especially if you see the guy He'd probably kick my ass. So I'm going to say right now, I'm not saying these things because I want to start a fight or get into a fight or anything like that. 
I'm just talking about the movie and the fact that it's bad. I have not myself watched it yet, but these boxing matches are also part of the subject of Raging Bull. Yes, that's B-O-L-L. It's a documentary on the filmmaker's life and everything like that, including these boxing matches that he's challenged people to. And just because the critics are the ones that actually had the boxing matches doesn't mean they're the only ones to get challenged. Some of the other people that were challenged to these boxing matches, uh, during publicity for Postal, Uwe Boll said that he is the only genius in the whole fucking movie business, and he called certain directors, I'll say Michael Bay and Eli Roth, fucking R-words. Obviously, he said the actual word. I personally don't use that word in my day-to-day. Hope you understand that. I'm fine with saying fucking, but the R-word is a no-no. Bay, of course, uh, was asked about this, and he said that Bull is a sad bean and that he couldn't care less about the comments. Roth said that he described the comments as the greatest compliment ever coming from Bull. <laughs> of course, that doesn't just stop Uva Bull, the most interesting man in Hollywood or filmmaking, I guess, really. He basically then appeared on G4's Attack of the Show, where he was interviewed, mind you, in the nude to challenge Michael Bay to a 12-round boxing match at the Mandalay Bay. Of course, Michael Bay didn't have to respond, but he did, saying partially, I never even heard his name till last week when he made threats and rants. The guy is a fucking idiot making threats to me. Clooney, Eli Roth, says he has a doctor, but uses the R word in his vocabulary. Come on. I don't agree with Michael Bay on a lot of things, but I even gotta say, yeah, he's kind of right. Um... Obviously, that boxing match never happened. Although, a Michael Bay Uva Bull boxing match would probably sell better than an Uva Bull movie. Supposedly, in September of 2016, he released his last movie, walked away from the camera and the end credits, and that's been it, right? Well, only kind of right. He still has produced and released a couple of movies uh, here or there, but it's definitely not as frequent as it used to be. Now, because he's moved on to something different in his life, he has entered the restaurant industry because he wanted to have German food in Vancouver. And truthfully, it's worked out for him. It's actually been pretty great. Uh, In 2020, his restaurant won a gold award for best European restaurant at the 2020 Vancouver Magazine Awards. So good for him. So that's where it stands today on Uvable. He's doing what he wants to do, and he's always been, and this is a common thing I've seen about it, he's always been honest. Honest the way he thinks it is. That's another way I'll quote it. It may not exactly be honest, honest, where he can admit that he made a bad movie or anything like that, but the way he sees it and the way he feels it, he's always been true to how he feels about it and how he thinks it is. So... I will say good for him, and he is a very interesting human being. Notice, I can talk about him a lot longer than I can probably talk about the movie Alone in the Dark, which got him a Razzie Award for Worst Director. So let's begin, shall we, talking about actual Alone in the Dark. Alone in the Dark is a video game adaptation of a game series from Infoware. Alone in the Dark stars Christian Slater, Steven Dorff, and Tara Reid. And, of course, is directed by Yuva Bull. Had a $20 million budget, as I said earlier. From what I can tell, it had a box office of $5.1 million, which, not great, I'll admit. But 
at least it made some kind of money. That might actually be saying a lot for this film. Let's go into the details of what happens. So the movie starts with a long scroll. And basically this was added because a lot of people were confused about what happened in the actual movie. So taking in from test audience and everything like that, they added in this long scroll to explain everything that happens. So there's a group called the Abkhani who opened a world between the light and the dark world. Uh, these terrifying creatures in the darkness, everything like that. The Abkhani basically were wiped off the face of the planet. It also introduces Bureau 713, which explores abnormalities in our light world, is what I will say. This group was founded by Dr. Hudgens. He was the leader of Bureau 713, but he was basically kicked out because he was psychotic, essentially. And now he is in an abandoned mine, and he does experiments on children, mixing them with creature. So he's mixing man with creature, uh, which are these creatures from the dark world. I don't, I don't know what else to call them. They, they're called Xenos later in the film, but we don't know that right now. We get a little intro scene that's obviously in the past where Hudgens is talking to a nun at an orphanage. And the nun admits that she is going to call the police eventually, but just give it some time where basically the children disappeared overnight. In that same scene, Hudgens is being told by one of his underlings that one of the children has disappeared. We kind of see him go through this thing where he sees the monsters and everything like that, the, the uh, missing orphan. And then it flashes to today. We are on a plane where our main character, played by Christian Slater, Edward, kind of jumps out of a nightmare. And he's sitting next to this kid who is... Basically talking to him saying, did you have a nightmare? Cheese gives you nightmare. I saw you eat cheese before. And Christian Slater basically gives this narration while he also scares the shit out of this child. So after the flight, we see Edward leave the airport and he gets into a cab. And basically this cabbie is just making small talk with him and everything like that. And Slater slash Edward realizes that they're being followed. And they're being followed by this thing called a sleeper. Sleeper is the thing that Hudgens has been operating on, making half man, half uh, Xeno. So they call them sleepers because they look like humans, but they kind of are evil in a sense. So one of these uh, sleepers is chasing after them in another cab. And basically, Edward, there's this whole chase scene and the cab gets pinned in a bad area and the sleeper is going to run through the cab. Edward jumps out of the cab left, and when the scene comes back, he's to the right. It's one of my favorite things to start off this movie, where we're not even 10 minutes in, and there's already been an error where I'm like, oh shit, I saw that, and I wasn't even paying attention to this part, really. After he gets away from the sleeper in the cab, basically he's running away, knowing that the sleeper is going to be right on his tail. They get into a hand-in-hand uh, hand hand combat, and basically there's like 80 different cuts in this fight sequence that you have no clue what's going on, but you kind of just know that Edward is losing. And I said at this point, he's struggling with one of these man-creatures, sleepers or whatever. We are supposed to believe that he's going to take out all of them at the end, because we know how this is going to go, right? He's going to win, save the day, get the girl, that kind of stuff. We also learn that he doesn't have his own weapon because he grabs a gun off of a cop and he starts shooting at the sleeper. 
And even though it has bullet time, slow motion shots that you can see obviously go through the heart of the sleeper, the sleeper is pretty much unaffected. I also gave a comment at this point saying at least it has blood. Because if you are going to go and be rated R and be a video game adaptation, why not go for it? Have blood. And so that was that was something that I was okay with and the fact that it is a bloody mess. Finally, they get to a fish packing market, which is why I've said I think it's either San Francisco or Seattle or maybe even Vancouver if it's to be believed that uh, Uva Bull was living in Vancouver at this time. Basically somewhere that would make sense to have fish on ice at this market where they're just like tossing fish and everything like that. So they get into this fight. He's holding Edward down on the end of the belt and there's like a pointy stick or stake hanging up right above him, and Edward's able to grab this hook and pull himself out of the way and get the sleeper to fall on the stake and spike himself through the gut. Sleeper down. Great. So now we go to a museum. It flashes to a museum, and we get introduced to another one of our new characters. This is Tara Reed's character of Aileen. Aileen works at the museum. She is basically the head of research when Dr. Hudgens isn't there. Yes, that Dr. Hudgens. I know what you're thinking. There's a security guy that is walking with this delivery guy up to Aileen and saying basically uh, the delivery guy is looking for Dr. Hudgens, but he doesn't know if he can leave it with Aileen. And the security guard is just like, don't you know who she is? This is Aileen. She is the leader of this thing when Dr. Hudgens is gone. She is also the head researcher of Abkhani culture. The reason I made notes of this is because the security guard knows way too much about the Abkhani, Dr. Hudgens, and also he has a throwaway line about, oh, it's because her boyfriend has been missing for three months, which is also insane that her boyfriend has just been missing for three months and like everybody knows about it. The security guard knows about it. Lots of people know that he's been gone for three months. This is also juxtaposed with another scene going on where Dr. Hudgens is on a boat in the middle of the ocean, and he is working with this ocean crew. They have found this relic in the middle of the ocean that they are pulling in onto the boat, and it is housed in gold because it keeps away bad spirits or locks them away. I'm not really too sure what they were saying about it. They said bad spirits, and basically this gold either keeps them in or keeps them out. So Aileen is looking at this thing that was sent to Dr. Hudgens. She's examining it. Hudgens is finding this relic in the middle of the ocean. And we don't know what's happening with Edward. He's on his own at his own place after having defeated the sleeper. So all three of these scenes are kind of happening at once. Aileen is looking at the uh, thing that was sent for Dr. Hudgens. She's examining it and everything like that. And then Edward, having just defeated the sleeper, is going home to take a well-deserved nap. And Dr. Hudgens is looking at this relic. The ocean crew with Dr. Hudgens are talking to each other and going, if it's housed in gold, can you imagine how valuable it is on the inside? And so they double cross Hudgens and lock him away in the, I guess, brig, but it's like a holding area kind of thing. The boat crew gets it open and all of a sudden pandemonium hits. You can see... You only get it from Dr. Hudgens' point of view, so you hear noises, you see things start to shake and everything like that. You have no clue what's going on. You just know they've unveiled something. As well as Edward starts having these like moments where he's like freaking out at his uh, house and everything like that. 
And Aileen's kind of seen these things that are spiking on the relic as it happens. Also, we see other people that are all of a sudden activated. They're sleepers, and because they've opened this, these people look like they're in a trance and they just walk out of their house with the clothes on their back and like no shoes, nothing, just whatever they had on. Because he was thrown in the brig, Hudgens is able to survive while the rest of the boat crew doesn't make it. Hudgens pushes open the door after a long time of fighting, able to get it open, and he steals whatever was in the relic or or in the uh, golden sarcophagus, essentially, and takes it with him as he leaves. After everything has happened, it is the next day. Edward didn't sleep well and everything like that, and he wakes up to a missed call. Basically, his childhood friend John is missing. And so he needs to go to the orphanage to find out more about what happened to John, why everybody disappeared that night, and what it could mean because he knows they're connected. Sister Clara is there and is like really willing to help and basically tells him kind of what happened. Not exactly what happened, but kind of what happened, that they were experimented on as kids and that they really didn't disappear. Dr. Hudgens kind of kidnapped them but she knew it had something to do with the Abkhani. And so now Edward has a heading. He knows where to go now. He goes to the museum to talk to the lead Abkhani expert, who is played by Tara Reid. That's Aileen. Edward walks in and is expecting this big welcome back from Aileen. They give a hug, and then as soon as they split apart, he is slapped across the face. Why did he disappear for three months? This is the boyfriend. We got it now. Basically, they're going to get away from the security guard and they're going to talk it over and be in private. And so they have this whole conversation. Not a whole lot happens in it. It's just kind of like, I'm sorry, I was undercover. I couldn't tell you I didn't want you to be in danger, that kind of thing. She kind of understands. She's still a little angry, but she kind of understands and realizes like it's going to be okay. And then the lights start flickering. And... Edward not only pulls out one gun because he has his own gun this time, he pulls out two and gives one to Aileen because he knows what's about to go down. Also, at the same time, the security guard is on his own in the museum trying to find out why the lights are flickering and what's happening and also trying to find Aileen and Edward to try to get them out of there. As the security guard is looking for them, all of a sudden it flashes to Aileen and Edward as they hear him scream in the darkness because he has been killed by one of these creatures, the Xenos. The Xenos can kind of hide themselves in the dark, thus alone in the dark. You're not really ever alone in the dark. And we get our first look at one of them, and the CGI... Not very good. Again, this is a smaller budget, so I kind of understand it, but still, it is not a good look. It is very fake. And you can tell you're looking at like a third-rate CGI studio that put this together. The CGI monster is able to scratch Aileen, and I'm wondering if it works like zombie rules, if she's going to become a Xeno now, and basically runs away. Edward and Aileen get to the front of the museum after being chased by it, and we think, "Uh uh-oh, who knows what's going to happen now. So now seems like a good time to take a break. So as always, we always have a guessing game when it comes to our bad movies. And the first one to guess the bad movie right that has a podcast gets a shout out or gets their promo played on the show. The first one to get it this time was Halloween is Forever podcast at Hollow Forever. Uh, They are on X Twitter and that kind of stuff. 
as well as you can listen to their stuff on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that good stuff, good pods even. You can find it everywhere. Basically, their description, pick a topic and listen to three mutant whore nerds rip each other's guts out on the way to deciding whose favorite flick reigns supreme. That is Halloween Forever Podcast. If you want to know more about them, I am about to play their promo. Congratulations, guys, for getting it correct. And we'll be back after your promo plays. Listen every Monday to Halloween is Forever for spooky, ooky movie reviews. Or follow us on social media at Halloween is Forever. Join the Patreon for even more ghoulish goodness. We are back and we want to thank the Halloween is Forever podcast for playing along. If you'd like to play along as well, I give you three hints, usually gifts that are not related to the movie in any way, but they have a certain clue to them. Use all of them and you can figure out the next bad movie yourself and you might get your promo featured in the next episode. So when we last left off, Aileen and Edward were at the front of the museum being chased by one of these Xenos and you can't see them. And they kind of feel like they're being overmatched because they only have two little pistols trying to fight off one of these Xenos. Until through the ceiling, through the doors, all these Black Ops Bureau people start breaking through the windows and start killing off these Xenos. Some of them get killed in the crossfire and everything like that, which good. This is not going to be one of those the villains can't shoot kind of situations. These villains actually know what they're doing. The leader of these agents is Commander Burke, played by Steven Dorff. Uh, He's now in charge of Edward's unit, and this is when we learn that Edward basically was part of Bureau 713. He no longer is anymore. We don't know why, but he's no longer a part of it, but he knows about this part of the world and how there's these spooky things that go bump in the night and that kind of stuff. Commander Burke and him, obviously, two macho men going head-to-head against each other. You can tell right off the bat there's sparks of the fact that they are going to be against each other for a little while. They get into a mini pissing match is what I call it. And Edward steals an ID card off of Burke. Why did he steal that ID card? You might be asking, well, it's because he needs a little more information. and He's going to use the ID card to look it up on a Bureau 713 computer. He gets himself in and is able to do some research, obviously hacking. It's cool and everything like that. You know, Even though you have an ID card, you probably still have a password system and everything like that, but he's able to figure it out pretty easily and get in. He found out that the original sleeper that he killed was a former 713 agent. Uh Uh-oh, that's a problem. He also is talking to this guy, Fisher. Fisher is played by Frank Turner. Fisher basically is a colleague of Edward. He works for Bureau 713, and he's basically his guy on the inside. He's been working with Fisher, and Fisher is able to tell him that he has this creature inside of him, as well as the rest of the sleepers that were at this orphanage. Basically, these creatures called the Xenos, and they are the ones that take over once the Mama Xeno, I guess, or the main Xenos are woken up through this device that uh, that Hudgens found in the middle of the ocean. Now, Edward's worried because he knows he has one of these Xenos inside him. But because when he was a kid, he got electrocuted trying to escape from Hudgens and his crew, it killed it and basically electrocuted the Xeno, killed it inside of him. It's still there, but he's not being taken over and made into a sleeper because of it. 
Meanwhile, at the same time, we see that Hudgens has taken the blood of one of these Xenos and he injects himself with it to kind of get like powered up, I guess. So after being given this information from Fisher, Edward heads back to his apartment house, whatever. It's like one big room and meets up with Aileen so that they can kind of try to figure out where these Xenos are coming from, what they can do to get rid of them, that kind of stuff. After doing a little bit of research, and I mean a little bit because it's probably 30 seconds worth of research, they find out that the Xenos, and more specifically Dr. Hudgens, has been going to this abandoned mine. And so now they know where to go. But of course, as soon as they uncover that, they start getting attacked by sleepers, including John, Edward's best friend from when he was a child at the orphanage. This is when things go crazy because the lights go out and Bureau 713 comes and basically, you can't tell what's going on. And I know in Yuva Bull's mind, he has this amazing scene in his head. It basically is going to be like flashing lights and you kind of get images of stuff. And they have all these guns and they just start firing. It's just poo, 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 poo. And there's creatures, there's guns, there's flashing lights. Plus, there's this hardcore metal song. And I know the scene he sees in his head, but it just does not translate onto the screen. It's absolutely horrible, including the sleepers that show up in the flashing lights and everything like that. They, You could tell he was trying to differentiate humans versus sleepers. So you can tell the characters are different and everything like that. But basically, the idea was they were just going to wear like paling makeup. So they only kind of seem like... They seem like horrible zombie makeup, you know, not even the good stuff that you can see on like an episode of The Walking Dead or something like that. It literally is like they painted them white and they're going to be these sleepers. Of course, Commander Burke is part of the Bureau 713 agents that have made it in there. He gets his gun hit away from him and he has this kung fu sequence with these sleepers and takes out like three of them. And Edward is away from him and Burke's just like, Edward! And Edward's like running away and with Aileen and everything like that. And so they're ahead of Burke. But then all of a sudden you just hear Edward go Burke. And he looks at him and Edward shoots right past him and takes out two sleepers like right through the head. And this was enough that when Burke finally catches up with them, they're like, okay, we're going to the mine. You're coming with me because you're cool. It's also funny because now that they know where the mine is, the, Bureau 713 people, especially this one that sits behind a desk pretty much the entire time, is kind of like, cool, we've now figured out all of these Xenos are centralized right here in this one spot. Like, you couldn't figure that out? It's been 30 years. Edward grew up with a Xeno inside him, and you couldn't figure out where these Xenos were? This is the part where things get a little crazy. I completely forgot at one point, and more so because I just didn't think he came back into the picture. Fisher was kidnapped by Hudgens, and he was fed a Xeno, so now he's kind of a sleeper. This does come back in the next, like, five seconds of this explanation. So they set up a perimeter around the mine. They know that Burke, Edward, Aileen, and a couple soldiers are going to go down in the mine and try to put down all the Xenos. But they also know that all the Xenos that are already outside of the mine will come. So they put up this perimeter, including with the generator that puts out light because these creatures are best in the dark. So Burke, as he's getting ready, is basically like, I want all these people here. I want every last one of them. 
everybody that we can get, get them here so that they can come help us so we can take out the mine. And then he's basically, Edward Aileen, you're with me. Three other soldiers, come on, let's do it. We have our team of six, we're good. And they go into the mine alone in the dark. You're welcome. This is not just any mine, by the way. This is the Abkhani mine. The Abkhani mine is loaded with traps because they wanted people to not be able to release the Xenos. So right off the bat, they fall down this trap and Marco, one of the guys, is spiked to death. Falls on these spikes and is absolutely just gone. So there you go. Now we've got our three heroes and two other soldiers are still alive. At the beginning of the fight, when the Xenos start coming, it's pretty even because the Bureau 713 guys are able to see them. So they're able to fire early on and everything like that. But one of the people that slips past the defenses because he looks just like Fisher is Sleeper Fisher. Sleeper Fisher goes to the generator and basically pulls a grenade off of this guy's or pulls a grenade pin off of this guy's belt and just blows himself and the generator and the guy up all at once. So now they're alone in the dark. Yes, I'm going to keep saying that because it's fun how many times they made sure they were alone in the dark. Also, some of the things that were funny about this is the perimeter soldiers. Uh, Basically, they start opening fire. And after like two shots, this guy reloads his gun. And I'm like, "Uh, so you went into a fight without reloading. Like you're not reloaded. You only had like two bullets and then said, cool, reload. You knew that you were going to be fighting enemies. You had time to prepare. And yet you still decided, oh, two bullets and then I'm going to reload. As this is happening, we see people lose from both sides. Basically, the small team in the mine loses someone. And then some of the people that you kind of met at the perimeter, they go and everything like that. There's a spot where there's blood on the camera. And it's definitely like a guy acting like he got killed. It's not very good because you can't see the creature because it's in the darkness and everything like that. It's just really bad. The small group with the three heroes and then like one other soldier they find the experimentation room and they find out that it's not just Hudgens who's been behind these experiments, but Bureau 713 has been behind it too. And they find a monologuing Dr. Hudgens. He's basically telling them all about how we can be better. We can be these sleepers, half man, half creature and everything like that. He also is holding a rifle on them. And he's using the scope and he's basically point blank from all three of them. So Hudgens basically holding them at gunpoint gets all the relics he needs. He needed three relics to open the door so he can release all of the Xenos. Basically, he was getting them all like one at a time or something like that. They were finding a way out or something. Now he's able to get the millions and millions of them. He's able to open the dark world and let them into our world. As the door opens, Burke is able to toss a knife into him and kill him immediately without him getting a single shot off at any of them the xenos don't really do anything they're just kind of there and they're just like hanging out they don't really move towards the door or anything like that nothing happens after uh, burke has killed dr hudgens but they know they need to destroy it in order to save the day and everything they close the door hudgens goes out finds a mine or like a, a time bomb kind of thing And it's basically like, you guys go, I'll be behind you. And as Edward and Aileen are going, kind of realize it's one of those like sacrifice situations, like Burke's going to sacrifice himself. The issue is he has a time bomb 
And like he can set it probably for a lot more than he did. He sets it for five seconds. They were able to close the door to the Xenos. They could probably still get through somehow, but he knows like he needs to open it and make sure they get all of the kaboom. So he opens the door. He throws the, uh, he was able to shoot at them, toss the bomb in and basically then runs away. So horrible CGI explosion. And you see him kind of slow motion diving, Edward and Aileen are being chased by fire in the cave system and everything like that. We see them open up like these storm doors that would be for like a tornado in the Midwest kind of thing that are going underneath. They're able to open these like barnstorm doors. They are free and they're basically unharmed. And then we see Burke and he's actually alive down in the experimentation room. Somehow, somehow he's made it. It doesn't come back. Maybe he's in alone in the dark too. But he doesn't die in this one. As Edward and Aileen are getting up off the ground after the explosion, they realize that these storm barn doors were right under the orphanage the entire time. Bureau 713 definitely knew about this. The orphanage was set up there as a way to get experimentation, children, that kind of stuff. Sister Clara is dead in the orphanage, and they realize that the entire city has been evacuated. And so they're walking through the city and it's completely empty. There's not a sound. And they talk about when they open the door, the Abkhanis were wiped off the face of the earth. Now that the door has been reopened, has it happened again? Because they're thinking it was evacuated at first. Now they're wondering if the people are just all gone. And then a Xeno comes out of nowhere attacking at Edward. It's the camera POV and end scene. That's alone in the dark. And there's a sequel to this, Alone in the Dark 2. It doesn't have any of the same cast, but it does exist. Yeah. Um, where do I start on this one? I mean, we can start with the cast first. Let's talk about that first. Christian Slater was like the stereotypical 90s action guy and everything like that. So I guess he makes sense. Tara Reid, terrible casting. Steven Dorff was miserable. The one I liked the most was the security guard, I think. I think he was the one I liked the absolute most. Everything else after that was just kind of like, yeah, this is all right, I guess. Christian Slater probably was okay for this movie, for the level of cheese and everything like that it needed. Was it great? No, not even close. Um, And obviously, they didn't want to be in the second one, or they didn't need to be in the second one, because Alone in the Dark 2 had a completely different cast. None of these guys made it to the second movie, which is probably for the best for them, honestly. So this movie was nominated for a couple awards, and I just want to give you what awards they were nominated for and which ones they won. They were nominated for the Dallas-Fort Worth Film Critics Association Awards Worst Film, and they were the winner for that in 2005. Worst Director and Worst Actress nominees for the Razzies for Tara Reid and Yuva Bull. Uh, Golden Schmoes gave it the Worst Movie of the Year nominee. And the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, uh, we had the winner of Worst Picture, the winner of Worst Sense of Direction, nominee for Worst Song or Song Performance in a Film or End Credits, and the 2005 winner for Least Special, Special Effects. So there you go. There's some of the, uh, the great things that it won awards for. The funny thing about this movie is that it was just predictable and it was boring. That's usually a death sentence for a movie, especially something like this, where it could have actually been a lot of fun. And a lot of people have problems with it because it was definitely 
astray of the video game players feelings of it. Yuvable made a movie that he just wanted to make and they tied it in by calling it alone in the dark. I don't think it actually is an alone in the dark movie. If you, if you understand what I'm saying by that, I love the fact that this movie is described as a horror movie. Uh, it falls into the action horror sci-fi stuff. There's nothing scary about it. You can show it to a toddler and they'll be fine, except for probably the blood. Truthfully, this movie is very harmful in the fact that somebody was allowed to make it and somebody was allowed to let this happen. And not only did they make it, they made a sequel and more movies like it. This movie is just a waste of time. It's an hour and a half. That's the good thing. And not great. (laughs) I don't know what I can say about this movie that hasn't been said already about it. It's the creature design is awful. The CGI is terrible. The line dialogue is like the dialogue in this movie is awful. The acting is atrocious and over the top. And I don't know how you expect it to be different. That's the thing about it. If it would be one thing, if these guys like did something different than what they normally do, it's Christian Slater and Tara Reed. They're going to do the performances, you know, they give. And that's not a bad thing for certain movies. Certain movies, you want that kind of thing. This movie, you knew what you were going to get with the lines of dialogue that you put in there and the actors you have in the situation. And that's my issue with it is, how did you not see it coming? How did you not see it as a red flag? How did you not like understand where this was going? Especially because you were given multiple scripts and and that's another thing like how did you not see it that's the worst part is i think they did because one of the conversations about this movie was the fact that somebody wrote a proof of this script and uva bull turned it down saying there's not enough car chases so you can say oh i expected to see this and be like oh it was exactly what i expected because it's just what i expected And then there's people that are like, this is exactly what I expected because this is what we're going to get no matter what happened. So Uvable, I feel like, knew where this was going. And that's the funny thing about it all is I think we could have gotten a much better movie if somebody in this process would have looked at it and said, hey, dude, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) So yeah, that's Alone in the Dark. I'm going to give it a... God, I feel bad because obviously we have the Mitchell zero, which is a 0.5, but I feel bad. I can't give it a 0.5. I can't. And I know there's so many people that worked on this movie that deserve better because I'm sure they were just happy to be working on a movie, but I'm going to give it a zero. I, I just have to. I absolutely have to because this movie was terrible. It is currently sitting at the fourth worst movie I've watched for this podcast and it has bad company and the only reason I say it's fourth worst is because there are some parts that actually made me laugh in it I don't think they were supposed to but there were some parts where I actually kind of chuckled out loud and enjoyed part of it or at least smiled at part of it the other movies that are at the bottom of this they didn't even do that so I'm going to give it a zero out of five and I'm going to give it chest bursters that don't burst out your chest because that's what the xenos were that was definitely what they were trying for anyway it's down in your stomach 
they didn't ever burst out, but that's what they're trying for, I think. So yeah, that's Alone in the Dark. That's the worst movie ever released in January of all time, or one of them anyway. If there's one you want to see for February, obviously we're going to do a lot of Razzie's coverage of the movies that came out this past year that are nominated for Worst Picture and Worst Actress and stuff like that. Worst Actor, because um, I don't want to just do Worst Actress. Tell us some movies you think we should have on our list if there's some Worst of February or Worst Valentine's Day movies. Rom-coms, there's a bunch of terrible ones that we've done in the past. There's a bunch of terrible ones we can continue to do. Uh, Vampire Boys and Vampire Boys 2 was part of our Valentine's Day love episodes. Um, so we definitely have some fun ones like that. One of the ones that came to mind immediately was The Hottie and the Naughty starring Paris Hilton. Tell me, if you guys got some ideas, reach out to us at Game for a Movie basically everywhere. Yeah. So there you go, friends. I hope you had a great time listening to me talk about Alone in the Dark and more specifically, of course, Yuva Bowl. Because, let's face it, somebody needs to talk about this crazy uh, uh, psychotic man. Psychotic. Jeez, I can speak. Hey, I have a podcast. I can speak words goodly. Somebody needs to talk about this psychotic guy because, let's just face it, he needs more attention on how crazy he is. But I hope you guys enjoyed the episode Alone in the Dark. Uh, Please let me know what you thought of the episode. If there's something I can be doing better, please let us know that as well. I appreciate you guys listening to the Game for a Movie podcast where we ask, are you game for a movie? I've been your host, Mike, and I will see you next time for Game for a Movie. Have a good one.